morning to 1 Samuel chapter 18. We are uh, moving verse by verse through a study in the life of David. And uh, today is our fourth study looking at David's life. And uh, just to remind you, there is an outline that we're following uh, for this study uh, of David's life. Uh, the first portion of David's life consisting of uh, God's preparation of this man. And so we are still looking at the preparation section uh, of this. And if you've missed uh, the last few weeks, and maybe this is your first time hearing the life of David, I'd encourage you to go back and listen to those first three studies because they are foundational for really what we're going to be looking at in the next weeks and months. But God is now preparing uh, David for uh, his role as the future king in Israel. And then the second big section that we're going to look at, and we'll get to that this section um, in the summertime, is the uh, success of David or the uh, fruitfulness of David's life. He's going to actually become king. And uh, that'll be, you know, age 30 uh, to 37, David is going to have two separate coronations uh, for Israel. And so we're going to look at the success of this God-hearted man. And then uh, as David progresses and as he goes through life and as he sits on that throne uh, through his own sin, but also just through trials and betrayals and difficulties of life, uh, we're going to see the pain of his life. And so that will be the final section of the life of David. So my hope and my prayer is that uh, you will see Jesus as we're going through First and Second Samuel, uh, but that also that David, as you're seeing Christ, would become a real friend to you in the years to come and that you'll be able to be ministered to uh, through God's word and through his life every time that you interact uh, with First or Second Samuel. Uh, so today, uh, we're going to look at uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18. So I'm going to do what I normally do, and I'm going to pray for our time in the Word. But as I'm praying, I'm actually going to pray for something else before we pray for our time in the Word. And here's what I want to pray for. Uh, I want to pray for our community that is, uh, you know, we're, we're getting really decimated right now by the flu. And uh, a lot of people are really getting taken out with it. I talked to a friend of mine who's a doctor and he in an ER locally, and he's been telling me about different young children who have actually died and that it's happening fairly regularly. And the reason I want to bring it up today is because a longtime a member of this church who over the last few years is attending another church named David Setnick, he came down with the flu recently and he's uh, basically on his deathbed uh, as a result of it. So I just want to lift up him, pray for him, but then also pray for our community that God would have mercy upon us. So would you join me and pray for that and then our time in the word. Father, we come before you and we want to lift up, Lord, our brother David to you, a, a good man, a lover of God. And we pray, Lord, that you would have mercy upon his body, that you'd have mercy upon his family as they try to navigate these really difficult waters, Lord Jesus. And so we pray, Lord, for your hand to be upon this situation and, Lord, for you to receive glory and honor in it and through it. And thank you, Lord, for his life. He's brought you so much praise and honor throughout his walk with you. We also pray, Lord, that you give us mercy in this community, just the flu, Lord, as it hits different people within this church and community. We pray, Lord, for your hand of grace and mercy to be upon us, Lord, and that you would uh, give us strength and wisdom. In one sense, Lord, it feels like we're so limited with all of our medical advances. We still just can't stop this thing uh, this year. And so, Lord, we pray and ask for your hand, your mercy, Lord, to be upon us. 
We thank you, Lord, as well for your holy word. And we ask, Lord, that you would speak to us, that you would teach us from this passage uh, within your word. We believe, Lord, that you are shaping each one of our lives, or at least desiring to shape each one of our lives for your honor and glory. And we pray, Lord, that we would allow you that access to shape us as you desire, as you will. And so, Lord, we submit this time studying, thinking about your word, as well as our closing time taking communion together. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. Amen. So this fall, uh, we're going to have our women's conference. Uh, We do it once a year. We'll have a full Friday night and then Saturday thing where uh, we get a speaker to come and speak to the women in the church. And I'm really excited this year because a woman named uh, Kate Merrick is going to come and uh, share the word with the women uh, this year. And Kate is a wonderful person, a great speaker, and has a beautiful testimony of God's grace and work in her life. And her husband, Britt, is the pastor of a church in Carpinteria called Reality Carpinteria. And he's a great pastor. I've heard him speak many different times. And uh, the Merrick family, and so Britt is one of them, is, uh, are in the surfboard industry. And so not only is Britt this um, great pastor, he's also a pretty world-famous surfboard shaper. So a lot of times in his sermons, he will talk about uh, the process of shaping a surfboard. And so, you know, I'm not a surfer. I've never been asked to shape a surfboard. I've never asked to really been do, do anything handy uh, in my life. Uh, but but uh, and when I think about you know, him and think about that image, the reason he tells us those stories is because he likes to draw the comparison between the shaping of these surfboards and crafting them for the specific kind of wave that that particular rider or the specific kind of person that's going to purchase that surfboard, their size, their shape, their skill, all of that. He is shaping it and crafting it for a specific purpose. And he loves to tell that story because he'll then talk about how God is shaping us. And the Lord is shaping us. He is working in our lives. He is shaping us or molding us or crafting us or purifying us. He is working on each one of our lives. And uh, as we're studying the life of David, one thing that you'll notice, of course, is that it was in David's later teenage years that he defeated Goliath, but it wasn't until he was 30 years old that he became the king over Judah, and it wasn't until he was 37 years old that he became the king of all of Israel. So there was a long gap in between God's calling upon David's life and the moment that he was fitted for the work that God had for him to do. So many years of preparation many years of God shaping this young man. If there was ever a moment that you would think that he was now ready to be the king, it might be after his defeat of Goliath. But God was not ready yet. God still had a work that he wanted to produce in David's life. And in a sense, is what we're going to be studying over the next few weeks and even months as we look at God continuing to prepare this man. But today, uh, this morning, in 1 Samuel 18, I want to show you through these different episodes the way that God was shaping David's life into the Christ-like nature and character uh, that God had for him that we might invite the same process into our lives uh, as well. So let's look at the first 
little episode to see the way that God would be shaping David. And maybe as we're going through this, a theme verse that you might be able to latch on to would be 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, which tells us that as we behold, as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory by the Spirit of the Lord. So maybe have that as your theme. The Lord is wanting to transform you into the same image of the one you're worshiping, Jesus Christ. He wants to bring out that Christ-likeness. He wants to shape you. So let's look at the first little section, verse 1 through 4. It says, verse 1, As soon as he was finished, or he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him, this being David, that day, and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt." Now, just to remind you of the scene, especially if you weren't here last week, uh, David has just slain Goliath, and immediately after the battle against the Philistines, he's invited into Saul's tent, where Saul and Abner interview him to find out, what family are you from? You know, the big thing that Saul had said was, whoever kills the giant is going to get to marry my daughter, is going to uh, be given great wealth, and his father's house is going to be free from taxes uh, for the rest of their lives. So what house, what uh, family are you from? And so they get together, David answers the question, and then when he leaves the tent, Jonathan, when David is done speaking with him, has this huge moment where he basically falls in love with David. There's this heart, there's this passion, there's this desire to, to know David, to care for David, to be a friend of David, to be on uh, David's team. And so what we see here now is that the son of of Saul, Jonathan, who is the rightful prince and the really, in a sense, heir to the throne of Israel, he is now becoming devoted to David. We see various phrases in the, these four verses that describe the transaction that occurred in Jonathan's heart. It says in verse 1 that his soul was knit to the soul of David. We learn also in verse 1 that Jonathan loved him as he loved his own soul. And we also see again in verse 3 that same phrase, that he loved him as his own soul. Now there's a reason that Jonathan was drawn to a man like David. The reason that he was drawn to a man like David is because he was very similar to David. You see, we dropped into our study of the life of David into 1 Samuel chapter 16. That means that we did not take the time to familiarize ourselves with 1 Samuel chapter 1 all the way through 1 Samuel chapter 15. I've tried to talk to you about a few of the events that occurred in those chapters, namely the raising up of Saul and the rebellion of Saul and the decision of God to reject Saul from being the king of Israel and rejecting the line of Saul from being the line that God would honor. But in the midst of those chapters, another thing that you discover is that Jonathan was incredible. Jonathan was an incredible man of faith. In fact, there's this one episode from 1 Samuel chapter 14 where Jonathan does something that is very similar to what David had just done in the valley of Elah with Goliath. 
Jonathan sees a Philistine garrison. He's by himself. All he has is his comrade or his armor bearer. And he speaks to his armor bearer. And he says to him in 1 Samuel chapter 14, he says, look at this garrison of these uncircumcised Philistines. Does that sound familiar? If you are here last week, that's what David referred to Goliath as an uncircumcised Philistine, a man that was out of the covenant that God had made with Abraham and with Isaac and Jacob. And Jonathan looked at his armor bearer and said, what is keeping the Lord from giving us the victory? The Lord could give the victory to many or the Lord could give the victory to few. And we could go up and we, by ourselves, could defeat this Philistine garrison. And the armor bearer was just as crazy and faith-filled as Jonathan was because he spoke to Jonathan and said, do all that is in your heart, I am with you. And these two guys went up and won a great victory against the Philistine garrison that then stimulated the rest of the men in Israel to come out of their hiding places and pick up their weapons and go out and fight against the Philistines. And so for whatever reason, God had determined that Jonathan would not be the one to go out and fight against Goliath. I think he had the faith to do so. Maybe he just wasn't there for those 40 days and nights. Maybe he was on some other mission for his father, but he gets word that this young kid named David has done something very similar to what he had done just a few years earlier. That he had gone out in great faith against a mighty Philistine, had won a great battle, and that the faith of the Israelite men had been stirred as a result of his victory, and that they ran in battle after being encouraged by the victory of David, just as they had been encouraged by the victory of Jonathan many years earlier. And so Jonathan now, he sees David and finally he's like, man, I've heard the phrase birds of a feather flock together, but I have not found anyone who has got the same feathers I do until I've seen David. And now there's finally a man who has that kind of faith and Jonathan does this radical thing. He, in making a covenant with David, takes off his robe, takes off his weapons, takes off his armor, and gives them to David. This helps us understand that the kind of covenant that, God, that Jonathan was making with David was a covenant that said, I will not be the one to perpetually or forever sit upon this throne. I will not be the one to come after my father Saul. You are the one. This was Jonathan's way of saying, though my father might not submit to the will and the plan of God, I will submit to the will and the plan of God. And I've heard that my dad's line is done. And so I'm taking off my armor, I'm taking off my, 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 my princely robe, and I'm giving it to you because I believe in what God is doing through your life. And the reason I'm making such a big deal about this covenant that Jonathan made with David is because, man, you've been there before. You've been in that place where someone makes you a promise that they do not back up. But Jonathan backed up this covenant to the day of his death. Over and over and over again, God would use Jonathan to encourage David's faith. David would say things to Jonathan like, there is but a step between me and death, and Jonathan would encourage his heart. Jonathan would strengthen David's hand time and time again in the Lord. So Jonathan was a man who kept that covenant. Jonathan was a man who was an incredible gift from God to David. 
And, I, and the reason that I'm pointing this all out to you is because I think one of the major ways that God wants to shape your life and my life is the way that he was shaping David's life right here. God wants to give to us friends that will shape us for his honor and his glory in beautiful ways. You know, the reality is good and godly friends can do a great thing you know, in your life and can do a great thing for you. Maybe you've heard the proverb. I'm sure many of you have heard this. Proverb 27, verse 27, uh, verse 17, which says, as iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, some of you guys are, are leaders. Some of you men and women here, you're leaders. And especially for you, friendships are really vital. And I'm a leader, obviously, here in this church and in this community, and the close friendships that I have are really important to me in my life. Uh, because one thing that friends will do for you if you're in, in leadership, especially in God's kingdom or just in the workplace or the environment that God has given to you, is that friends will help you uh, relax, there will be those moments where they just laugh with you and they just encourage you and they just sort of help you realize that not everything in life is this big battlefront and war. And they enable you to just sort of sit back. And sometimes that's what my friends will do for me. You know, I'm trying to fight the good fight of faith and then we'll sit down and we'll laugh together and enjoy each other. And I realize, oh man, this is just refreshing. This is just encouraging. This is just helpful in the difficulties of life that we are all in. You know, another thing that friends will do for you is that they will help you with the process of cultivating humility. Humility is so important in the Christian life. You can't get anywhere without it. And the second that you start getting a big head about yourself, you start thinking that you're so fantastic for the gifts that God gave to you or the stuff that he's doing through your life, you go to hang out with your friends and you realize that they're not very impressed with you. And they'll help, you bring, they'll help bring you back down to earth. Friends are good for that kind of thing. And then oftentimes, friends will be used by God to give you wisdom. You might be in some leadership position in the military or something like that, and you've got a friend in your life that doesn't know the difference between an E6 and an O4, and they don't get the whole thing, and they don't even know what branch of the military you're in, but that lack of perspective of what you're doing in that close friendship helps give you perspective for something that is happening in your role, in your work, in your career that's in front of you. And so the Lord will do that through your life. But what I really wanted to say this morning in this section is that not only is God looking to shape you with just friends, but make sure to understand that God is trying to shape you with spiritually minded, godly friends. You see, the truth of the matter is that you can surround yourself with people that will discourage you in your faith, or you can surround yourself with people who will encourage you in the faith that is yours. Paul said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 that, the, that a human being is constructed this way, that our whole spirit and soul and body must be sanctified before the Lord. Now when you think about that, what you, what you have to understand is that before you were a Christian, if you're a Christian here today, if you're born again, before you were a believer, what you were was basically body and soul with a buried and dead spirit. 
And Jesus announced that we had to become born again or born of the Spirit. And so when you became a believer, the spiritual side of you that was previously dead in trespasses and sins became alive. And so now the spiritual man is alive. And part of the goal or the desire of the Christian mind is that we would have the spirit predominant over the soul and over the body. And we're going through this process where we're trying to make sure that the spiritual side of us is the most alive part of us and that the soul and the body respond in obedience to what God is doing in us in the spiritual realm. And so for that, God wants to give you spiritual friends who have also been made alive in Christ Jesus and are awake to the things of God. You've got to have people like this within your heart and within your life that will remind you of God's grace and will remind you of Christ's likeness, will remind you of the gospel and remind you of the mission that he has for us in the church. I think that this is an easy point for us to admit to when we think about anyone who is younger in Christ or younger chronologically. You know, we look at someone that's young in the faith or young in age, and we think to ourselves, you know, that's so important. You've got to surround yourself with the right kind of people. And probably every one of us can, in our minds right now, think about someone that we know whose life was derailed as they hung out with the wrong group, the wrong crowd. And I know when I was 18 years old and started walking with the Lord, there was a whole different thing that had to happen where the set of friends that were mine, I had to set them aside at least for a moment to adopt a whole new group of Christ-minded, gospel-minded human beings who could become the new family, the new friends that would help encourage me in my walk with the Lord. I think that's easy for us to imagine when it comes to, to younger people. But the reality is this is always true for us. Don't ever think that you're going to get to a point in your life where your friends will not influence you. You will always have this going on in your life. I was talking to an older couple recently, and by older couple, I mean I'm not going to say their age. (laughs) And they were sharing with me, they just were talking about their lives. And they were talking about some of the friends that they have in their lives. And they were telling me about a few of the friends that they have that are not believers. And they said, you know, we love them, and we care about them, we'd love for them to know the Lord, and we do have a good time when we're with them. I I don't know what they do when they're together, but, you know, they just talk about life, have a glass of wine, eat some cheese, I don't know what they do, but that's what they, but then they said, but the thing is, is that we've noticed that when we get together with our believing friends, There's just a dimension there that that, that encourages our lives, that builds us up, that refocuses us on the things of God. And I was so blessed hearing that, listening to someone in their, you know, last third of their life, you know, saying, this still is impactful to make sure that I surround myself with spiritually minded, godly people because I can be influenced in the wrong direction up until the day that I die. All right, so the first thing I want you to see is that David was shaped with this godly friend, and I believe that God wants to do that in our lives as well. Now let's read the next section, verse 5 to 7. It says, And David went out and was successful. 
uh, wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistines, Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. Now in a moment, we'll continue reading the story, and what we'll discover is that Saul had a horrible response to this song. He couldn't stand the fact that they gave to David tens of thousands, and they only ascribed to him thousands, which he should have considered himself lucky. lucky. The song should have said, David has slain his ten of thousands, and Saul was a really good spectator for 40 days, watching the Philistine go out. I mean, Saul didn't do anything that should have been stoked that they gave him credit for thousands. But Before we look at Saul's response, I want you to think about what was happening here in this moment. David is probably about 17, 18, 19 years old. He's been called by God, anointed by God for maybe five or six years at this point. The spirit has come upon him to defeat the lion, defeat the bear, and now to defeat Goliath. He's 18 or so years old, and he's coming back from battle where he just took out one of the greatest foes individually that Israel has ever seen. He's just done something that we are going to sing about, that we're going to study, that we're going to rejoice over for all of eternity. I mean, this guy has just had an amazing thing happen in his life. And the women in Israel, they start to sing. And the way that they sing is very interesting because they sing, Saul has slain his thousands and David his tens of thousands. Now, the reason that this is interesting is because there are plenty of times throughout Israel's history, where they came back from battle that God had miraculously provided for them, where the women of Israel responded just like this, with tambourines and with singing and with a song that they sang. But in the other places that they would sing their song, typically they would not sing of the warrior, they would sing of the Lord. Probably the most classic example of this comes in Exodus chapter 15 when the people of Israel were up against the Red Sea and Moses prayed as the Egyptian army came down upon them and Moses prayed and spread his hands and the waters spread and the people passed through and the waters closed upon the uh, Egyptian armies and this great victory was given and Moses sang his song and then after he sang his song and led the people of Israel in it his sister Miriam the prophetess went out with other women and they had tambourines and they were doing that whenever I think of the tambourines I think of like like hippie women coming out with their tambourines you know and they're singing their song and this is what they sing to the Lord they sang Exodus 15 verse 21 sing to the Lord For he has triumphed gloriously, the horse and the rider he has thrown into the sea. The reason I'm pointing all this out is because I think this was a huge test in David's life. The way that he is going to respond to this massive success and praise from human beings is exemplary. This 17, 18, 19 year old young man is not going to get a big head about it. He's not going to think great thoughts of himself. In his heart, he hears that song from these women and he thinks, no, that's not right. It's the Lord who gave us the victory. 
In fact, in Psalm 24, David would ask the question multiple times, who is this king of glory returning from battle? And his answer was not myself. I'm the king of glory. His answer was the Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle, the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. And the reason I'm building all of this up and saying all of this is because I think that God was testing David through his success. You know, the reality is the word trials, when we think of trials, we usually think of the hard things in life. The things that might automatically stimulate us into prayer. The doctor says, it's cancer, you pray. You start crying out to God. It might be a why God, what's happening, you know, kind of thing, confusion, but you're going to cry out to the Lord. You're going to go to God. But the word trials means tests. And sometimes the Lord will allow us to become tested through a success in life. And David's heart was true before the Lord. Even when things were going well, even when God was blessing his life, even when things were successful in his life, he was passing that test. And the sad reality for so many believers is that the second that things begin to go well, the second that it feels like the trials abate, the second that they begin to be promoted is the second that they begin to forget God. And the Lord is the one who gives us the gifts. The Lord is the one who cares for our lives. The Lord is the one who provides for us. And when you were depending on the Lord to bring in that daily bread for that specific day, it was much easier to cry out to the Lord. But what are you going to do when you have 10 lifetimes worth of money stored up in all of your possessions and in all of your bank accounts, will you still cry out to the living God? Will you still in that moment say, God, I am in need of you? Like Paul said to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, he said, Timothy, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be prideful or haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So as Paul's way of saying, continue to be desperate for the Lord. Continue to cling to the Lord. So maybe a question that we could ask ourselves on this point is, how will I respond to the successes of life? Some follow-up questions that we might ask are things like, will financial security give me a false confidence in myself? Will career advancement become the idol that I worship? Will the discovery of some gift of the Spirit fill me with pride because of that gift? Will the growth of my family as I have children cool or calm my passion, my love for God? Will I forget about His kingdom? Or will the fruitfulness of my church dry up my prayers for that church. Jesus said to the church in Laodicea in Revelation chapter 3, He said, You say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing, He said, that you are wretched and pitiable and poor and blind and naked. You see, in Laodicea, this cancer of self-sufficiency had crept into their hearts. And they believed that they did not need the Lord. 
And so the Lord communicated to them, no, you do need me. Even in the success of life, we need to still cling to and have that dependence upon the Lord. So this is really important. This is a great test of the human heart. You know, recently I gathered together, I invited a bunch of leaders in our church for a, just a night of prayer. And we were just having this night where people in different forms of leadership, we gathered together and we just spent the night praying for 2018. And the whole tone of our night together was just this. It was the tone of desperation. And, you know, the reason that we were praying that way was because as we look around and as we see people getting saved and people being baptized and the church growing and good things happening in people's lives, and there are great things happening in people's lives, we felt a need to continue to be conscious of the reality that we are in a war that we cannot win by ourselves. And that the obstacles that are in front of us are absolutely massive and that the enemy that we are up against is altogether strategic and cunning and working hard to destroy generations that are coming. And he has created a system whereby to destroy these human lives and for us to be able to make an impact there, we need the miracle of God working on our behalf to get the job done. And we just wanted to express that to God. God, this is impossible without your strength, without your help, without your power, without your might. And so my question to you is, do you have that sense within your heart? So the Lord, he will shape you with the successes that come within your life. Don't let your heart be wayward from God in that moment when things are going well. The gospel is a lifeline, but it is also a way of life. All right, now verse 8 let's read our third scene. We've got four of them, so two more to go. It says in verse 8, and Saul was very angry. You know, he was upset about this song, and this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David played the lyre as he did day by day. Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, verse 11, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. And so these are the first two times that Saul tried to kill David of many times. Saul was afraid of David, verse 12, because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of a thousand, and he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. All right, so Saul here responds in this jealousy uh, for David. You know, he hears the song and he just can't stand it. You know, he can't stand that they ascribed a thousand thousands to Saul and tens of thousands to David. And so it just infuriates him. And so he conspires in his own mind that he's going to kill David while David is playing the harp. These two things become emblematic of their relationship. The spear in Saul's hand, the harp in David's hand. as the way that their relationship was going to go. 
And so Saul tries to kill David a couple of times and it doesn't work. And so finally he says, all right, if I can't beat him, I'll join him. And so he promotes David to be a commander in Saul's army. And he sends David out into battle and the Philistines don't kill David. David just continues to have these great victories. And all of Israel sees the exaltation of David and they rejoice over David and as David is being exalted in Israel's sight Saul grows increasingly fearful of David and as we'll see as the story goes on he continues to conspire uh, against David's life Now, what I want you to see here it's actually a little complicated how I want to lay out this point because what you see here is 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 basically that God is exalting David Right? That's what he's doing. He's lifting this man up in the eyes of all of Israel. Right? You guys with me? You guys with me? The 11 o'clock. You guys are a little funky right now, okay? So let's stop it, you know? So he, he, he's exalting David. And as he is exalting David, there is Saul. And what is Saul trying to do? He's trying to destroy David. He's trying to pull David down. Right? Here's how I want to describe this. The gospel of Jesus Christ, this great message that we have believed, it is a message that it, when you believe in it, it is a message that seeks to elevate humanity. In other words, God works redemption throughout the duration of a a believer's life. So it's not just that on the day of your salvation, redemption happened then it's that it happens for your whole life so maybe an example of this would be if a man or a woman comes to christ and they have this massive anger problem they're just angry at people all the time there's just bitterness coming out they're they're a they're just kind of a nasty person they come to christ they're forgiven they're redeemed they're cleansed from that but that doesn't mean that on that first day of salvation and every day therefore uh, you know forward they're going to be kind It means that God wants to take them on a process of redemption. And some of you are those people. You're sitting here today and you know that's exactly what the Lord very specifically worked in my life. I came to Christ and I was an angry, bitter person. And some of the people here in church today wouldn't even know it that I was that because now you're a big old huggy bear. And you're sweet and you're kind and you're gentle because the Spirit of Christ has worked in your life. It's not just the natural process of maturing. It's the redemptive work of God in your life. That is the upward pull of God in the Gospel by the Spirit working in your life. There's a description for this in Romans chapter 8. It's called the law of the Spirit. Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 2, that the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. When Paul is saying that, what he's not saying is that when you became a believer, the righteous requirement of the law was fulfilled by Jesus at that point. That is true in the Bible, but he says it and teaches that in other places. In Romans 8, what he's saying is there is this thing called the Spirit, the the law of the Spirit, that when you become a Christian and Jesus fulfills the law on your behalf, and because you could not do that before, now the Spirit of God comes into your life and this law of the Spirit begins to take over in your life where the law of the Spirit is pulling you up into a fulfillment of the law of God. In other words, the very thing that you could not do before The the law of the Spirit is wanting to produce in you now. 
Not to earn salvation, but because you've got salvation. You guys following me? So there is this law of the Spirit that is pulling you up, but there is also a world system and an enemy that is against us and also our own flesh that will pull against, pull down against that law of the Spirit operating in our lives. And so I I wanted to, to, to say it all that way because that's what's happening in David's life. God is elevating this man but the enemy is pulling down upon this man, trying to destroy the work that God is doing. And so I wanted to encourage you to be a people who understand that God is trying to shape you despite that downward pull. It's people who are not conscious of that downward pull that get decimated in the Christian life. So to be awake and aware that that downward pull does occur. And Look, I, I realize there's temptation, there's the world system, there's you know, the enemy and all of that, but I specifically wanted to say it in the realm of what we do to ourselves because I think a lot of times believers will self-sabotage. I was talking to a friend of mine recently who he's a, he's a great man. God's doing amazing things in and through his life. And he's a graduate of the bridge here. And it's just been so powerful to watch God redeeming his life, working in his life. And it's, it's very clear as I'm spending time with him and as others have spent time with him and are just watching his life that he has gifts that God has given to him, a call upon his life. It's just really powerful what's happening. But we were talking and my, you know, my whole encouragement, my whole heart for him is, look, there are going to be moments in your life where you are tempted to disbelieve that God is doing that work. And you're going to remember with shame what came before, and there are going to be moments where you might even self-sabotage the work of God. God will open a door for you that He wants you to walk through, and you're going to say, I'm not able, I'm not good enough, I'm not called to that, this is, this is really who I am. And that, to me, it's in that moment that the law of the Spirit is trying to pull someone forward, but that thing within us resists against that. We can self-sabotage that process of God in our lives. And so I want you to understand that God is trying to do that in you, but you've got to say yes to the Lord producing in that, that in you. Do not self-sabotage by going back into the old ways, the old habits, the old identity, the old life, the old friends, the old sins. But say to yourself, no, God, this thing that's happening in me is real and true and legitimate. And so I'm going to continue to chase it out to the very end. All right, so I just want to encourage you in that. That downward pull, it's coming but resist it. All right, our final story. Uh, let's read it together. It's verse 17 all the way to the end of the chapter. And uh, just a uh, little, uh, little warning here. Some of you might have your children with you or something. There's some grown-up words in this text. I heard that the children's ministry has been going through the same passages that we've been going through over the last few weeks. That was totally unintentional, just kind of a Holy Spirit thing, David and Goliath, Saul's an, uh, David's anointing, all that kind of stuff. Uh, but the children's ministry, they told me, they said, hey, we, we didn't cover these verses uh, this week. The title for our message this week is, David Makes a Friend. All right, so, so we don't have this next section 
There's things like the word foreskins is in this, te- this to next text quite a bit, so it's a little awkward. So let's read through it and uh, <clears throat> see what the Lord has for us. Okay, so then Saul said to David, verse 17, Here is my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a, a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel the Maholathite for a wife. So Saul pulled a switcheroo on David and, and withdrew Merib from being able to marry David. Now Saul's daughter Michael, verse 20, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And David And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants, verse 23, spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants, verse 24 of Saul, told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David, The king desires no bride price, no dowry. This is the thing David was worried about. I'm, I'm poor. How am I going to pay the bride price, the dowry? That was the tradition in those days. And so they said, Don't worry. The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines, and when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200, not 100, but 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. I'm trying so hard not to imagine the scene but it's just there, man. And Saul gave him his daughter Michael for a wife. And when Saul Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Okay, there it is. That's the story. <laughs> All right, so, so what are we to do with this? <clears throat> Sometimes all you have to do is just ask the question, what would the original readers have gotten from a passage in God's Word? Remember, I talked about this last week. The Philistines were enemies of Israel. Israel were God's delivery mechanism to bring the future Messiah, Savior of the world, to the earth. So the Philistines, an enemy of Israel who would ultimately give birth to the Messiah, the Philistines were being used by the the devil himself to try to exterminate the people of Israel to stop God's gospel plan. So this was 
No joke. This was a life and death kind of situation, the battle between the Philistines and the people of Israel. Saul, though, in his mind, he thought to himself, well, hey, I can't stop David. I'm throwing these spears at him, and he evades it. I try to put him out and you know, promote him, and he's getting all this fame. So here's what I'll do. I'll tell him he can marry my daughter, Michael, and I'll tell him that all I want is a dowry of a hundred dead Philistines. So David goes out, and Saul's plan is really simple. He's thinking the, the wedding is never going to happen. He's going to go out and try to kill a hundred Philistines, and the hundred Philistines are going to get to him. He might get one, he might get two, but eventually the numbers are going to outweigh him, and he's going he's to get got by these guys. But David comes back before the time is up, and he's taken out 200 Philistines. And so the wedding goes forward. Michael loves David. Israel loves David. Everybody's promoting David. And Saul grows more fearful because of the success that God has given to David. So remember that question. What would the original readers have gotten out of this story? I think this is a big picture of what they would have gotten. They would have looked and seen that Saul had a plan. But that God also had a plan. And that God's plan was so sovereign and powerful that God was actually going to use Saul's plan to get his own plan accomplished. This is a really important way that God shapes us. Because the enemy does have a plan. Life is brutal. And as we move through life, we pick up a lot of stuff. Whether it's abuse or abandonment or betrayal or divorce or illness. There are all these different things that the enemy has a purpose and a plan for them in. And the reality is is that these things are often very difficult to move past. And I think it's very important for us to make sure that we are not flippant about these kinds of things that happen to people in life. We should not flippantly just say, you know, hey, these things happen to you, they hurt, they're painful, uh, but, you know, remember at Romans 8.28, God uses all things together for good to those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. And remember Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he said, I forget the things that are behind and I press forward to the upper call of God in Christ Jesus. So just Philippians 3, that thing, and move on. You know, it's important that we don't have that kind of trite, flippant, quick response. However, it is still important that we believe Romans 8.28 and that we believe passages like Philippians chapter 3. It might be a process that a person has to enter into, but what I want you to be confident of is that the enemy may have his purposes for those ugly things in life, but so does God. And God has His redemptive, beautiful thing that He wants to produce 
in and through that thing. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be hard. It doesn't mean that it's not going to be ugly. It doesn't mean that it might not chase you to your grave and be one of those things that you feel betwixt by. But the reality is God wants to use it in your life. And here is Saul with this plan to crush this man, David, but God has a bigger plan. And he would actually use this ugly plotting of Saul for his ultimate glory and purpose in David's life. I asked her before the service if I could share this story. I knew she'd say yes, but I, and I wasn't even going to talk about who she was. I was just going to keep her anonymous. But Bree, who gave announcements, she said, you could tell them who I am and what God has done. But Bree is a young woman. She's 29 years old, with child. I don't know if you noticed that. She's married to a great young man who loves the Lord, but Josh is not the first husband that Bree's had. She got caught up in a nightmare situation, a nightmare relationship. And when that just exploded, she walked into the body of Christ, hurting and wounded, but I'm so proud of her moving forward. And she continued to receive counsel and receive God's Word and and step by step just ask God to help her in life. And as the Word of God has grown stronger and stronger in her and the Lord has cared for her and blessed her, you know, He's had a certain way of redeeming that situation in her life. And that's not a promise for every person that that means, you know, some great guy is going to come and sweep you off your feet or something like that. But that's just a beautiful thing that God did in her life. And the reality is we come in here with all these things, all this history, and the Lord looks at us and says, look, I want to take that stuff that the enemy meant for evil, but I want to use it for great good. And I have these plans and these purposes and these things that I want to unfold in your life. So God, he wants to shape you by redeeming the enemy's plan. Do not get caught up and only stay back there. But remember, the Lord is working and moving in your heart and in your life. This is like an amen point. If you don't say amen, I'm just going to keep going. (laughs) I need the amen to be like a move on, Nate, you know, kind of thing. Okay, so again, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, we're being transformed into the same image, the image of Christ. Okay, so let's close in prayer, and let's ask the Lord to bless us as we now take communion together. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you. Lord, for being the God who blesses us in this kind of way, that you are shaping us and molding us. And now, Lord, we just come to your table. We ask that you would encourage us, Lord, as we eat the bread and the cup. In Jesus' name, amen. As the ushers pass out the bread and the cup, if you're a believer, this is for you. If you're not a believer, just let it pass uh, you by. But this is for you, if you're a believer, to remind you of the body and the blood of Jesus Christ.